Now you got a pitch. Ask for money for WBAI? Damn straight. You got to ask for money for WBAI and you got to get people to give it because you are now in charge of publicity and promotion. And if you don't get people to donate, we got to fire you. So I have to tell everyone that WBAI listeners supported free speech radio, truth and justice radio, radio for the 99.5% on 99.5 FM is the best radio station in New York City, the only truly listener-supported station in New York City, and they should contribute to WBAI, become WBAI buddy members. And if they don't... Then we got to fire you. You can't fire me. Why? Because I'm just a volunteer. WBAI doesn't have enough money to hire somebody to do publicity and promotion. So what do we do instead? How about a silly conversation like this that we can broadcast on the air and say, please support Peace and Justice, Free Speech Radio, radio for the 99.5% at 99.5 FM. Contribute. Become a WBAI Buddy member. And the time now is one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for... The Independent News Hour here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI and streaming on WBAI.org. I'm Ambagir Garian, Associate Editor of The Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We hit the streets with a brand new print issue last Tuesday. It's really exciting, has some updates on um, Palestine-Israel coverage as well as local topics such as these monstrous budget cuts being proposed by the mayor in a relatively unprecedented uh, move of austerity. So you can also find us online at independent.org. And I will be solo hosting today. My co-host, John Tarleton, is out. And I'll be hosting a special Christmas edition of the Indie News Hour. We will be spending our first segment with Jonathan Kutab of uh, Friends of Sabeel North America, a voice for Christians in Palestine. And we will be talking about the ongoing atrocities in Palestine that not only the majority uh, Muslims are facing, but also Palestinian Christians and other groups. And uh, Christmas, as you may have heard, Christmas was in fact canceled in Bethlehem yesterday, or Christmas festivities were um, by a group of faith leaders, Christian faith leaders there. So we will look forward to getting uh, uh, to this conversation with Dr. Kutab, uh, Jonathan Kutab, sorry, uh, soon. Uh, but then I just want to preview our following segment. We will be speaking with Dr. Bedros Matosian, who is the professor of Middle East history and politics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And he focuses on uh, comparative genocide studies around Armenia and greater Middle Eastern studies. So we're going to talk about the Armenian genocide, how it's sort of ongoing today in the region of Artsakh, and also how Armenian Palestinians are oppressed by Israeli forces in Palestine. So a packed show looking at the persecution of Christians um, in Palestine. So uh, let's get started with our first segment. We're going to be speaking with Jonathan Kotab, the executive director of Friends of Sabeel North America, an unapologetic Christian voice for Palestine. And Dr. Kutab is a human rights attorney and author of Beyond the Two-State Solution. So he has some interesting ideas on uh, why the two-state solution is a political unicorn, shall we say. Sorry, John. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry for, for calling you a doctor. I'm not sure if that's if that's accurate, Jonathan, but welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you here with us. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Okay. So first, just tell us a little bit more about Friends of Sibyl North America. You're with the group and it's a transdenominational Christian organization saying that it seeks justice and peace in the Holy Land. 
uh, promoting a vision of an ecumenic with an ecumenical liberation theology. So we want to hear about this and about the work that you all do. Well, uh, Sabil actually is a uh, grassroots movement. Uh, it's an ecumenical movement that, that that tries to promote liberation theology, which means we try to make our faith relevant to what's happening in the world around us. Uh, it uh, belongs to all denominations, and I am uh, very proud to have been uh, with the organization uh, since it started and uh, to do my best to uh, keep its message alive, particularly in today's uh, situation. And what kind of work is there for Palestinian Christians to be doing? Uh, what kind of work do you all do, and and, and how do you um, talk about the fact that there are Christians in Palestine? What is, what is your you know, message well, around that? A lot of our work is educational, uh, promoting the message of uh, Sabil, uh, some of which has to do with countering Christian Zionism, which is the misuse and abuse of scripture to justify uh, Zionism and what it's doing uh, to Palestinians today. Yeah, but a lot of it is also activism, uh, going around to churches, to legislators, to prominent people, informing them about what's going on and challenging them uh, to do the right thing. Uh, of course, uh, when we have an ongoing uh, uh, genocide as we have today, obviously uh, our activities are much more uh, compressed and impactful uh, because uh, we realize we have an obligation uh, to bring that message even more so than in usual times. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people and groups have been uh, responding to that. And we're going to get into the ongoing genocide uh, very shortly. But first, I just want you to talk a little bit about the type of solidarity that you have been experiencing, that FOSNA has been experiencing since October 7th, and the um, yeah type of solidarity it's been experiencing and the type of solidarity that you have been acting in with other groups. Uh, I know that FOSNA has co-sponsored some uh, protests in New York City uh, led by various Palestinian groups. And, you know, that's obviously heartening to see these co-sponsored actions. Well, it's it's very interesting the kind of solidarity we have been getting, which has been very encouraging. Uh, a lot of the solidarity has been with Jewish groups, very progressive Jewish groups, who, who find what's happening totally appalling, partly in light of their own experience with uh, genocide, of course. Uh, partly out of their own uh, commitment uh, to what is going on. What has been really shocking is the failure of Christian groups uh, to do their job as mm. Mm. The response mm -hmm. of the church has been tipped, has been very shy, has been very reluctant, uh, to the point where even to call for a ceasefire, one of the most basic things has become quite controversial, and it takes a lot of moral courage. Can you imagine that? It takes yeah. courage for Christians <laughs> to call for peace at the time of Christmas. It's, it's shocking for me to even say those words. Yes, it, it, it's, and it's shocking to hear, to be honest. Um, but so speaking of that, there, you know, we do want to talk a little bit. I mean, yesterday was the Christmas celebrated by uh, many uh, Christians, and we have also the Orthodox and the Coptic Christians who celebrate it later on the 6th and 7th of January. But uh, Christmas was usually there are Christmas celebrations, uh, lighting and, and whatnot in, in Bethlehem, but uh, ahead of Christmas, uh, because of because of the genocidal attacks on Gaza and the attacks on the West, in the West Bank on uh, and really all Palestinians living in the in the in the territory, um, it was canceled. So there apparently Bethlehem was rather quiet uh, yesterday. They did not encourage people to not celebrate Christmas, but to obviously think of the dead dying and the persecuted this year. As many have said, if Jesus was born today, he would have been born under rubble. And uh, just to make that even more 
I don't want to call it ironic, even more true. Uh, yesterday during ongoing uh, Israeli settler, often backed by IDF, uh, raids of Palestinian homes in the West Bank. Many villages, many towns were attacked, including Bethlehem on Christmas. Um, so can you please comment on on that? And then if you want to also the the attacks of the, the churches in Gaza. Well, this is this is indeed a very ironic and 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 I'm not sure I even understand uh, how that is even possible, uh, because usually uh, my, my my experience is that the Israelis have been very careful and have tried to uh, maintain public opinion, have tried to project uh, a certain facade or image of liberality and of democracy and of uh, sort of decency. Uh, but but uh, recently that has been eroding very rapidly, uh, perhaps under the current government. But now we see something almost entirely different. Uh, we see a new uh, power, uh, almost power drunkenness, uh, and a new feeling that we can and therefore we will. That as long as President Biden is behind us, as long as Congress is behind us, as long as the 1% are with us, as long as we have the power to do it, we don't need to worry about public opinion. We don't need to worry about international law. We don't need to worry about morality. We don't even have to be careful what we say or don't say. We can be open about it. I've never seen a situation uh, where genocide is openly promoted and advocated and expressed uh, both in terms talking about uh, Palestinians being human animals, talking about wiping out Gaza, talking about ethnic cleansing as if it was the most natural and normal thing uh, to do. Usually, uh, I'm a lawyer, and so I'm always looking to the legal angle. Uh, the, uh, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide uh, talks clearly what is genocide. How do you prove, how do you show that it's genocide? And usually one of the hardest things to do is to prove intent. In this case, there is no problem. The Israeli officials at every level openly talk about their intent to wipe out Gaza to totally destroy and eliminate it. They talk about cutting off water, cutting off medicine, cutting off uh, food, uh, forcing people out of their homes. Uh, you have 24 hours, you have to leave. We don't care where you go, just go south, go out of here. We talk about Netanyahu promoting, publicly promoting, ethnically cleansing all of the Gaza Strip, making it totally unlivable, and moving people to Sinai or other places, uh, even asking other countries, why don't you just take the Palestinians? Take them off our hands. We don't want them here anymore. Uh, this kind of blatant uh, disregard for international law, for public opinion, for morality, uh, and, and just reliance on total power, uh, I've never seen before. Right. And so going back to um, the extremism of the current government and how there is more uh, all of this open um, ethnic cleansing, including now that of um, Christian Palestinians. Um, let's go to a, a clip on December 18th from Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Flor Hassan Nahum, who said there are no churches in Gaza and no Christians in Gaza after being presented uh, by a British reporter of a, with a report that Israeli forces targeted a church um, on December 17th. Why is it necessary, it is reported, to start shooting, having snipers outside a church? I don't, I saw the report this morning. Um, the church, there are no churches in Gaza, so I'm not quite sure where the report well, 
is, is, is there's talking a, there's about. a Catholic church in there, isn't there? That is. Yeah, unfortunately, the... there are no Christians because they were dry, dro drove, driven out by. Well, there some are, respectfully, there are Christians because I spoke to an MP yesterday who has family members in the church who are Christians. Well, I don't uh, know what happened. I don't know who was attacked. I didn't see the report. Arab Jerusalem, Flor Hassan Nahum, and uh, just to back that up, church leaders say Israeli troops killed two women and injured seven others at the Holy Family Parish in northern Gaza on December 17th, and churches in Gaza have in fact been under siege since the beginning of the war and long before that. For example, St. Porphyrius, built in 1150, is the oldest church still in use in Gaza, uh, located in Gaza City, and an Israeli airstrike hit it on October 20th, killing at least 18 people who were sheltering there. And this church was offering sanctuary to people of various faiths uh, in that moment and over generations. So um, comment on that and comment on the fact, please, that this uh, deputy mayor of Jerusalem is outright saying, you know, lies. I guess that was a lie. Well, it's 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 convenient, I think, uh, from the Israeli propaganda point of view, uh, to totally dismiss uh, Palestinian Christians as non-existent, and to present the conflict uh, such as it is as one between Islam and Judeo-Christian values and morality with Islam being the other, the barbarians, the uh, negative uh, people. And, and, and uh, of course, when you talk about Christians, that throws that whole narrative uh, into uh, confusion. Uh, because what do you do with Palestinian Christians? This is one of the things that we run across in, uh, in, in Sabil all the time. Uh, because we are a Christian group. And the Christian community is not just a theoretical something. It's a living, uh, operating community of, of faithful people who trace their history back, uh, actually to the time of the Pentecost, uh, to the, to the time of Jesus. Uh, so for, for him to say there are no such thing as Palestinians, uh, as Palestinian Christians, is, is only the same thing that, that he used to say that there's no such thing as Palestinians anyway. That Palestinians are like some invented people that, that you don't exist. Uh, because obviously if we don't exist, then you haven't displaced anybody. You haven't replaced anybody. You haven't taken anybody's land uh, because there was nobody there. It was a land without a people for a people without a land. Uh, so this erasure of Palestinians uh, theoretically, uh, consciously, but also physically, they need to be removed. We are an obstacle that needs to be out of the way. Right. And um, you live in East Jerusalem, uh, or you've lived in East Jerusalem. Tell us a little bit about uh, just the day-to-day -day oppression uh, that one might well, face. The, the Palestinian community has always been a multi-ethnic, multi-religious community. Uh, there are Palestinian Christians, there are Palestinian Muslims, there used to be also Palestinian Jews who spoke Arabic and ate hummus and played dabke, and, and uh, they just were of the Jewish faith. Uh, so uh, Palestine has always been multi-religious and multi-ethnic uh, community. Uh, what, what, what Zionism does is say, no, all these other groups don't really belong. This only belongs to the Jewish people. Only they uh, are uh, genuine or indigenous or worthy of note. Everybody else are transient. They just happen to be here. We don't know why. It's an accident of history. Uh, <laughs> it ought to be uh, corrected anyway. Uh, because they don't exist. Uh, our very existence is a uh, problem, I think, for the Zionist movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in our last question, Jonathan, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, which was the failure of Christian groups to stand up and do anything as little as calling for a ceasefire. So um, could you just talk a little bit more about that? just about what groups are doing things and then the groups that 
are maybe curious about getting involved, how they could? Well, uh, I, I think a lot of grassroots groups are acting. Some churches are acting individually. The problem is with the leadership. The problem is at the very top. Uh, many churches uh, at the very top are are afraid. They don't want to upset uh, their own relationship with the Jewish community, uh, especially the organized Jewish community, because they have no problem with Jews as such. It's the organized Jewish community that that, that is exercising uh, great power. Uh, we, we've seen even the universities are afraid. Heads of universities are afraid to allow uh, Palestinian solidarity uh, on their campuses uh, because they would lose donations. Uh, they they would uh, they get investigated by the federal government. Uh, it's it's it's. I've never seen a situation where so much power was exerted to silence people. I mean, uh, the United States is a pluralistic society. It has uh, people from different communities, different parts of the world, different countries, different ethnicities. And, and all these ethnicities can live together in this country. They can be fully American and still be Greek or Latin, uh, Latino or uh, uh, Italian or uh, Arab or whatever. But when it comes to this issue, to the issue of Palestine, all of a sudden, there is great uh, pressure on everybody to conform to the official line. And if you deviate from it, uh, you, you can actually be uh, punished uh, for deviating from the official narrative. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Jonathan Katab, an international human rights lawyer and executive director of Friends of Seville North America, which you can find at Fosna Live on social media if you want to follow them or online at Friends of Seville North America. So thank you so much for joining us. And we will go to a short break here, a music break, and we'll be right back with more.
Welcome back to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 and streaming on WBAI.org. That was Taj Taj by Feruz, a Christmas Carol by the most beloved and regarded, one of the most beloved and regarded um, Arab singers from the Arab world. She was a Christian from Lebanon. And you are listening, hearing all of this Christmas special edition uh, solo hosted by me, Amba Gergarian, the Independence Associate Director, uh, Associate Director, I don't know, I can't speak today, Associate Editor, <laughs> same thing, uh, listening on the airwaves of WBAI 99.5 FM. And something that is very interesting to me about WBAI is that we are the only station that is fully run by independent donations, meaning we don't have corporate sponsorship, we don't have private sponsorship, um, people controlling what we say, and uh, that's the only station in the New York City airwaves that that does that. Of course, you have other stations that are partially funded by uh, listeners, but we are fully listener-sponsored, and that is why we are able to talk about things openly, like the uh, persecution of not only uh, the Muslim Arabs in Palestine, but all those uh, that... uh, I don't want to say that aren't Jewish, but that won't go uh, uh, along with what Israel wants in Palestine. Uh, We are able to talk about all of this because we are on WBR, because we are listener sponsored. And I know your pockets are empty, but I am going to do the thing that we have to do in order to keep the the radio antenna going, the radio antenna rented and ourselves on the air, which is uh, to ask you to give the money that you can to us. Uh, you can do so by donating online at WB at give number two WBAI.org. That's give numeral two WBAI.org or calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to support this radio. And you can do it once. You know, you can call that number, go online and and give once whatever you have. Uh, If you can give $5, we appreciate it. If you can give 100 that's great. If you have extra money lying around and you want to ensure that you keep getting to hear our programming and you can give 1000 that's great. If you love the station and you listen regularly and you want to regularly support, you can sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. And if you would do that in the name of the Independent News Hour, we would really appreciate it. Uh, just to show that, you know, that this news that we deliver to you on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. is interesting and helpful and gets you home from work more informed or whatever it is. Um, so please, again, that number is 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or online at give the number 2 WBAI.org. Give numeral two WBAI.org. And now we will turn to our second segment. Um, we are honored to be joined here by Dr. Bedros Matosian, who is the professor of Middle East history and politics at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. There he focuses on Armenian and comparative genocide, Ottoman studies, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and global history. So in this segment, we are going to talk about the Armenian genocide and how there is sort of an ongoing current ethnic cleansing of Armenians. Um, Today, between Artsakh, a territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and we will also bring it back to Palestine and talk about the oppression that Armenian Palestinians face face in Palestine. Dr. Matosian is, in fact, um, an Armenian from East Jerusalem, an Armenian-Palestinian-American. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bedros Matosian. Dear Matosian, uh, Amba, dear Matosian, uh, thank you for inviting me to your show. Uh, and uh, it's an honor to be here. It's a sad Christmas and sad New Year. We can't say Merry Christmas or Happy New Year. Yes, I, I, um, absolutely. It's it's not a, a time to be celebrating. Um, and, you know, right before we get into it, Dare Matosian, I, I, I wanted to just share a little bit with our listeners, because, you know, we have listeners who 
listen to the show regularly. And um, you, some of you may know or have guessed that I, Ambegar Gedan, am Armenian. I'm a, a quarter Armenian. My family on my father's side uh, is Armenian and Syrian, uh, and, our, and the Armenians fled to Egypt, but they all ended up in Egypt, and the Armenians fled to Egypt uh, before and during the genocide of Armenians um, by the Ottomans, uh, and that started well, technically in 1915, but we'll talk about the history leading up to that in, in a moment. Um, and my uh, my great great uncle, uh, Dr. Krikor or Gregoire uh, Gergarian, was uh, one of the foremost historians on the genocide, and he risked a lot to go and dig up. Um, a lot of documents, and you can find them actually at Clark University if you want to. You can find all his documents in my grandfather's handwriting, who helped him transcribe much of it. Um, and something I think that's hard for my family and all families and all Armenians and uh, is complex in a lot of ways is the is the denial of the genocide. So that was my great great uncle's work was to prove that it happened. Um, so that's actually my father met your great great uncle. Oh! In the 50s, I think, when he when Krikor went there to do his research at the Armenian Patriarchate Archives. You know, I know of Gergerian very well, actually. So, yeah. Well, we watched a clip of him recently when he was speaking. When he was very old, he was a very pious man. He was a uh, uh, he was a part of the church, and he um, was speaking about an encounter that he had in Turkey. In I think, but I'm not sure. In Turkey, uh, when he was later, uh, maybe in his 50s or something, he fled. He was the youngest of 16. He uh, survived under his bed watching his family get slaughtered and then somehow was spared, was sent to an orphanage in Cairo and ended up meeting up with my great-grandfather, who was the eldest of 16, and children, that is, and had gone to Egypt right before the uh, genocide. Anyway, interesting. So he so they had to leave their house and whatever the soldiers slaughtered most of the family and, you know, sent them out of the house and uh, took the house. And just like they were doing in Israel today, these Israeli settlers taking the Palestinian houses. Um, and one day when the one of the soldiers or the commanders that had ordered the, the massacre in their home um, came up to him when he was in Turkey, found out he was going to be at this hotel, brought him some fruits from their garden and some silver with their name on it and, and asked, you know, wanted uh, to be forgiven. And I think Krikor said, go to the, go to, go to Mecca or something like this, but he sort of forgave him. And this is an interesting story. I think I'm a little bit young and hot headed. <laughs> I was like, how could you forgive him? But welcome. Let's get into, let's get into this. Tell us for those of us who don't know who are the Armenians Uh and you know, you, and and what is the Armenian genocide for those who feel that we're speaking out of context? It's all going to make sense. Of course, uh, Armenian history is not about only Armenian. People tend to think that Armenian history starts with Armenian genocide. Armenians are an no. ancient nation mm -hmm. in the region of historic Armenia, which today's Turkey, uh, current Armenia, and. Uh, sections of Persia, and they have survived many uh, persecutions. They established kingdoms, kingdoms collapsed, they were dispersed. What's unique about Armenians is, is their decentralization, which is a feature and a reason for their survival, because they were not concentrated in one specific region. They were concentrated in many multiple regions, and that's a reason for their survival. The last Armenian kingdom existed from the 10th century to the 14th century with the collapse of the Cilician kingdom in 1375 in what's today the region of southern Anatolia, uh, called Cilicia at the time. And since then, Armenians have been part and parcel of the Ottoman Empire until the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in 1918. Uh, Armenians, of course, existed in Eastern European, uh, sorry, Eastern, uh, Eastern part of, uh, Eastern part of, uh, let's say, the uh, historic Armenia, uh, which is today's uh, Armenia, 
uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan. And so Armenians towards the end of the 18th, let's say 17th, 18th century were divided into two sections, Eastern Armenians and Western Armenians. And both of them were persecuted, I should say. It's not that Armenians were living in a better situation under Christian Russians. They were persecuted. In some cases, the condition of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire was much better, and specifically dealing with the time period. But towards the end of the 19th century, with the creation, with the international uh, political machinations, the imperialism, etc., Armenians were used and abused. The Armenian question was used and abused in order to score points by the British and the, and the uh, Ottomans and the French and the and the uh, Russians specifically in order to have a uh, foothold in the region. But to make a long story short, the Armenian question dealt with the condition of the Armenians in the eastern provinces, provinces where they were persecuted. And the Armenians wanted to reform the their condition, and uh, there wasn't any. There was reluctance by the government to reform the Armenian Armenian question, and that reluctance would take on uh, in the post nineteen oh eight revolution to reform the condition of the Armenians, and eventually during World War One, the leading. Uh, ruling elite of the Ottoman Empire, the inner clique of the Committee of Union and Progress, took a decision to annihilate the Armenians of the uh, Ottoman Empire in order to solve once and for all the Armenian question that has lingering been lingering in the uh, in the uh, international diplomatic arena for decades. So uh, most of the Armenians uh, of the diaspora, I should say are the byproduct of the Armenian genocide. Armenians uh, formed, this does not mean that they weren't Armenian uh, diasporic communities, they were, but the majority of them formed the modern day diaspora from Egypt, Cairo, to Marseille, to Paris, to uh, Glendale, not Glendale, sorry, for, to Fresno, to Worcester, and London and many other places around the globe, including and not only limited to uh, Europe, but also the Middle East. The majority went to the Middle East, to Aleppo, uh, to Beirut, Lebanon, and then some even went as far as and went to Palestine. And that's the story of my family, who uh, uh, my uh, family survived. Certain, certain sections of the family survived the Armenian genocide and they came to Aleppo, after which they, uh, they came to, went down to uh, Lebanon. And there was a major epidemic in Lebanon in the 30s. They ended up in uh, Palestine, mandatory Palestine. And we've been living in the same house since their arrival, which is in the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. And we're um, looking forward to talking more about that um, a little bit later in in the segment. Uh, but um, talk a little bit uh, about how the land and the population of Armenia shifted after the genocide. Um, and of, of course, course, I of course, the genocide was not only the annihilation of the Armenians. There, uh, right. Out of out of let's say if, if 100% Armenians existed in the Ottoman Empire, about 95% of them were eliminated or were expelled or were deported, uh, with uh, more than one million being slaughtered in a systematic manner. Their houses were uh, confiscated and appropriated by the Kemalist regimes too. So there is this argument that there is no connection between the uh, Republic of Turkey and Armenian genocide. It's the Ottomans that they know there is a strong connection, continuity or continuum between the Ottoman Empire and the modern day Turkish Republic. So to that extent, there is a connection between the modern day Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. But also uh, there it was a dramatic, traumatic experience for those who survived uh, with the horrors of the genocide that they suffered. And uh, many of them ended up uh, suffering from PTSDs to silence about the uh, horrors and the uh, and the uh, uh, suffering and the uh, tortures that they faced during the genocide. Mm. So uh, that's the by- byproduct actually of what we are today, what we, there is a collective uh, uh, generational trauma that Armenians suffer, of course, 
despite the fact that we haven't experienced the genocide, our families, our ancestors, our grand great grandmothers who passed the trauma to to their children. And then hence we are the third generation of uh, genocide. And as, as, as I, you know, as I said in a, in a recent edited volume about denial of genocide in 21st century, which was published this year, actually in May by University of Nebraska Press, as long as denial continues, genocide continues, right? As right. long as denial continues, genocide continues. Yeah. So uh, we're dealing with a country, a major country, which is Turkey, which pours millions of dollars on an annual basis in order to deny the Armenian genocide. All right. Um, and so, right. The, I just want, if I wanted to go back to where my family was from, it would be in Turkey. Yeah. Uh, so this is, and I'm talking about this all because this is relevant for the Palestinians and for anybody else who, you know, faces this, um, you know, has faced genocide, um, which is, you know, a, a lot of the world's population, unfortunately, a sizable amount that is. Um but right, so if I wanted to go back to where my family was from, it would be Turkey. It would be almost Western Turkey, and uh, and now Armenia is this. If you look on a map, it's this tiny country between Russia and Turkey, and next to Georgia, um, and but next to Azerbaijan as well, and bordering Azerbaijan as well. And there's a a, a territory between Azerbaijan and between Armenia called Artsakh or uh, to the Armenians, or Nagorno-Karabakh to the Azeris. So, uh, and there's been a, well, there's been war going on here over time uh, through 90, in 1994, there was a ceasefire, which was broken in 2020 by the Azeris. And again, recently talk about what's going on in Artsakh. Um, so the issue is about self-determination of uh, groups that have been persecuted. Uh, Armenians have strong ties to Artsakh. Uh, historically, they've been there for thousands of years. Uh, uh, with the collab- and they've suffered uh, in the, during the formation of the Soviet Union when Artsakh was uh, given, was uh, designated as an autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh under the rule of Azerbaijan. Uh, since then, Armenians have sought of reuniting with Armenia or asking for independence. And they've complained about discrimination, economic disadvantages, disadvantage, uh, persecution, and they always ask for reuniting with Armenia or having an independence status. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Armenians uh, start asking for independence and they run, do some referendums uh, and the uh, majority of Armenians now ask for independence of their territory, which was mm-hmm. a territory. And that leads to a major war in the 1990s, which results in the Armenian victory. Of course, a victory is only a victory of who won the war, but Armenians and Azerbaijanis actually paid a high price for the victory. Uh, about 30,000 people on both sides were killed during this war. It was a horrible war. So beginning with the ceasefire until 2020, there has been kind of diplomatic uh, negotiations with the Organization of Security and Cooperation of Europe, different platform, different uh, different versions, different types of solutions. But... All in all, Armenians Armenians wanted that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh has have to have saying in the final resolution of the conflict, which the Azeri side, Azerbaijani side, has always denied. And uh, in 2018, there was a major event in Armenia, which was the uh, Velvet Revolution. And of course, if you think about Russia. And Velvet Revolutions, uh, uh, Putin gets allergy whenever there is a revolution, or Russian Federation gets an allergy whenever there is a revolution in its neighborhood. Same thing happened in Ukraine, in Georgia, and in Armenia, the Velvet Revolution happened. There wasn't any intervention by the Russians, despite the fact that uh, uh, Russia has a base in Armenia. And uh, I was see, I was thinking as to where when is the answer going to come when when we go when Armenia is going to receive the slap in the in the face and that happened actually with with the war of 2020 
uh, backed by Russia. Doctor, Doctor Matosian, we're having a little bit of trouble with your audio. Maybe if you could try and turn off your video, maybe that will help. Thanks, listeners. We're live. The joy and the pain of broadcasting live. Uh, so, um, last thing we heard uh, clearly was uh, 2020 being the slap for the Velvet Revolution of 2018 in Armenia. Yes. So, uh, 2020, uh, Azerbaijan, aided by uh, by Turkey, uh, aided by uh, Russia. Russia gave the green light, as far as we uh, understand. Uh, uh, attacked the uh, independent uh, Democratic Republic of Artsakh, leading to a major war that lasted for 44 days, and that war ended up with the uh, with the uh, Azerbaijani victory over Armenia. 5,000 Armenians were killed, and around 3,500 uh, Azerbaijani soldiers were killed in order to be able to get the regions that are beyond the uh, uh, region of Nagorno-Karabakh. So a, a, P, a ceasefire treaty was signed on uh, in the in, in, during the last day of the war, by which uh, Azerbaijan was to going to adhere to specific points. One of the most important points was to allow the transfer of food, medical personnel and other necessities to the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, which had above 100,000 Armenians. But, uh, of course, Azerbaijan did not adhere to the ceasefire agreement. It initiated a blockade over the Republic of uh, uh, Artsakh and uh, for eight months, which I call uh, it as a genocide by attrition. When you create conditions in which people suffer and they don't have any access to food that's called genocide by attrition in the uh, in in the in the terminology academic terminology but uh, thinking of it too that that genocide of attrition ended with the attack with the second attack by uh, Azerbaijan now uh, on the republic of Artsakh without any uh, without any uh, excuse leading it now leading to a major ethnic cleansing. More than 99% of the Armenians were ethnically cleansed to do from the uh, from their ancestral homeland and currently residing in the Republic of Armenia. Artsakh is empty. This happened at the time in which major uh, in which the concentration was on Ukraine and who cares about the Armenians once more the idea of who cares about the Armenians uh, during the blockade, none of the major newspapers even reflected about the condition and the suffering of Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. It was only in the last one or two weeks that they started paying attention as to what's happening, and it was too late by then. So uh, Armenians called call it as it was a, call it a genocide. But I disagree. It's, it's not a genocide. It's clearly an ethnic cleansing case where the majority of the population, not majority, all the population have been uprooted from their uh, from their lands and are being uh, settled in uh, the Republic of Armenia. Their houses, their belongings, everything they had have been confiscated and looted by the Azerbaijani soldiers and by the government. Right, pushed pushed more and more into this small territory uh, that was drawn for quote unquote for them, um, uh, and I I want to shift because we only have a few minutes left in the show, um, but just uh, really briefly, yeah, it, it's frustrating to uh, be an Armenian, tell people that, and they either don't know what that is or don't know what the country is, don't know who the people are, or just say, oh, yeah, there was a genocide there. It's just like, you know, really kind of like boiled down to this one thing. And like you said, it affects the general um, our collective sort of consciousness and messes you up in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. But 
why don't we hear about Armenia? That's obviously promulgated by the fact that nobody hears about it in the news or is really taught about it in school. Why is that? Uh, geographic proximity doesn't Armenia doesn't have doesn't have anything to give in terms of natural resources. The bias towards Azerbaijan was due to Azerbaijani lobbying, but also due to the fact that Azerbaijan is a major oil producing country. Mm. And during the at a time in which Russia is under sanction, so uh, the oil the West needs Azerbaijan's oil uh, more than any moral stance towards what's happening towards uh, towards Armenia. So there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, hypocrisy, I should say. On the one hand, uh, promoting democracy; on the one hand, on the other hand, not standing in front of with along with democratic states when they are. Uh, suffering under authoritarian regimes. I mean, uh, Azerbaijan is an authoritarian regime. It's not a democratic regime. It's about oil? I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> it's always about oil and resources uh, and never about morals or values. Um, there are sorry. no morals or values. Yeah. And, and speaking of oil, you know, it's uh, there is... Um, in the East Mediterranean Sea, right off of Gaza, there are $550 billion worth of oil there, which is something that's not being very well reported, but has been well proven. Um, and apparently Israel has already been making some contracts with various oil companies to, um, I guess, have the first pick on that um, and, and whatnot. But so bringing it west over to, to Palestine, um, there are at least two groups of Armenian Palestinians. There are the Armenian diaspora that came fleeing the genocide. And then there are groups that came before that. Can you talk about uh, the, the indigenous Armenian Palestinians, as you say, and how they got to Palestine and how that connects to their um, Christian history, shall I say? Yeah. I mean, uh, Armenian history of Jerusalem or Palestine or the Holy land goes back to the fourth century, with the right. discovery of the holy places by Helena, the mother of Constantine, uh, uh, Emperor Constantine, and uh, the, uh, uh, the hence the arrival of pilgrims to the uh, to Palestine uh, begins uh, by the fourth century, and eventually you have a community that established in what's today the Armenian quarter. The first bishopric established in the seventh century, and the patriarchate established in the fourteenth century. And to that extent, Armenians have had long presence in the uh, in in Jerusalem, and are no, I don't actually I don't call it Jerusalem Armenians of Jerusalem. I call I call the place Armenian Jerusalem because Armenian Jerusalem is a unique identity that you cannot find in any part around the globe. It's Armenian identity, Armenian Jerusalem identity, because Armenians. Do not consider some Armenians. Do not. I don't consider myself as a diasporic group because Armenian Jerusalem is kind of a homeland for Armenians too. You know. Right. Yeah. And so the indigenous Armenians lived there for centuries. They were called Kakatsis, as uh, meaning indigenous people. And uh, with the arrival of the Armenian genocide survivors after 1915, 1920, here you have the beginning of the formation of a new community. Uh, whereby uh, you have uh, Armenians coming mostly from Cilicia and settling in Jerusalem, thousands of them within the Armenian quarter, and now creating a major new reality, which is the formation of a modern Armenian entity within the region of the old city of Jerusalem, but also uh, within other parts of the uh, of, of the um, of Palestine. Armenia. Right. So, you know, unfortunately, I just want to give you a heads up. We have about two minutes here in this last couple of minutes. Just speak to the persecution that Armenians face in East Jerusalem and kind of how that represents the persecution that other groups face that aren't just Muslim, Arab. Uh, Armenian Armenian location actually decides their uh, status. Armenians of East Jerusalem are considered from the perspective of the Israeli uh, government as Palestinians because they are from East Jerusalem. Anyone who is East Jerusalem 
no matter what religious religion he adheres to, is an East Jerusalem has an East Jerusalem cat category, meaning uh, uh, discrimination par excellence in uh, in bureaucratic matters dealing with all aspects of life, whether family reunion, whether uh, whether uh, issues dealing with uh, uh, marriage and other issues, they are discriminated. Uh, also, regardless of the fact that whether they have Israeli passport or not. So uh, I think at the end of the day, if you're not a Jew in East Jerusalem, you don't have any chance to be treated um, on equal foot with uh, with other people, or with West Jerusalem, for example. Uh, so far, I think the, the threat be, besides the bureaucratic discrimination or state, state uh, discrimination are the settlers. And the Orthodox Jews who live in the uh, old city, who live in the Jewish quarter, or who bypass or pass by the Armenian Armenian quarter to the Jewish quarter, Armenians there suffer a persecution, whereby these kids, the settlers, usually attack Armenians, harass Armenians, spit on priests, urinate on the cathedral. So there's a long history of persecution. Uh, by which they enjoy impunity because the state is not taking any measures. And you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see anyone daring to spit on an Armenian priest, priest walking down in uh, Manhattan, for example. Yeah. So this is a, this is the, this is a major issue. And we're wrapping up here. Um, we're hearing our music as Gisher Lusnak Gisher tonight. The moon is full. It's an Armenian folk ensemble, um, unknown, uh, but Givorg Dabagian and others. And in your last 15 seconds here, Dr. Matosian, just fin final words. Final words is, uh, is a ceasefire. Ceasefire for Gaza, I should say. Return of Armenians to their Artsakh and peace, though I don't believe in peace anymore. <laughs> Dr. Bedros Matosian, world historian, genocide, comparative genocide historian um, at University of Nebraska. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to be following up with you. There's a lot more to talk about. Thank you, Amber, for hosting me. Bye. Good evening, I'm Paul Durienzo with these headlines. Ukraine used air-launched cruise missiles overnight to strike a large Russian warship in Crimea. The attack was confirmed by Russia's defense ministry. The attack on the ship occurred at the port of Feodosia, and the ship was damaged. It usually carries tanks and military personnel and exploded in a large blast captured on video. One person was reported killed. And Israel expanded its offensive into refugee camps near Gaza's cities over the weekend. Israeli forces have engaged in heavy fighting in North Gaza and the city of Khan Yunus, driving Palestinian refugees into ever smaller areas. At Al-Shifa Hospital, WHO investigator Sean Casey described a nightmarish scene. I'm back in Al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza for the third time this week, where it's still a case of absolute misery. With people still on the floors, it's almost impossible to walk critical cases. Despite U.S. calls for Israel to curb civilian casualties, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the military is deepening the fighting. Meanwhile, on Christmas Day, chanting Christmas is canceled here, protesters clashed with police in Midtown. Six were arrested for menacing an officer, graffiti and disorderly conduct, mostly near Grand Central and Union Square. Hey, that's assault! That's assault! The protest began at the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center in the afternoon. The night before, a group holding a blood-soaked Madonna and child protested at St. Patrick's Cathedral during midnight mass.
Today, Mayor Eric Adams' administration said there have been 483 separate protests on behalf of Gaza in New York City since October 7th, involving 161,000 people. At a press briefing, Mayor Adams was critical of a September 2023 consent order worked out between the NYPD, Attorney General Letitia James, and the Legal Aid Society constraining cops from mass arresting peaceful protesters. I don't believe that people should be able to just take over our streets and march in our streets. I don't believe people should be able to take over, take over our bridges. I just don't believe you could run a city this complex where people can just, you know, just do whatever they want. The agreement characterizes protests in four tiers. According to the mayor, last night was a tier three protest. There's sad news for the Pacifica radio community. WBAI live host and local station board member Ralph Pointer has died. A lifelong activist for the freedom of people of color in the United States, he was partner of People's Lawyer, Lynn Stewart. Appearing on this producer's MNN cable show, Let Them Talk, he defended Lynn Stewart, who had been in prison for her